Um, true story. I hired a person with four images in his portfolio. Four. That was it. And they were great. They were four amazing pieces. They were completely demonstrative of what we needed. So they had UVs and materials. It showed that they knew the pipeline. They knew the fundamentals. That's it. It was like almost nothing there, but they were so good. We moved to hire. I wonder if you've been able to notice the differences between who is able to make it and who isn't. And what are the most common mistakes that people are making before they can get into the industry? You know, I went from a point where I could barely even pick up a Wacom pen. I was so burnt out, I couldn't even sculpt. Welcome to the Industry Standard Podcast, your brand new number one source for access to the best and brightest minds in the gaming, VR, movies, films, animations, motion graphics, VFX, you name it, industries. My name is Anna Carolina Pereira, and I'm your host today. I am a VR and game developer, character artist, and technical artist. And I currently work as a professor at the Wrangling College of Art Design, who incidentally is our sponsor for today, specifically the VR department. You'll be hearing from them at some point during today's workshop. Ah, you'll be hearing from them. This is not a workshop. <laughs> you'll be hearing from them during today's podcast. My editor will probably leave no, that. It's in there. perfect. That sounded great. I hope <laughs> I hope they keep it all in. <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> today we have a very special guest with us, Matthew Keane. Matthew has been in the games industry for over a decade, and he's currently lead character artist at Certain Affinity, a studio you may or may not have heard of. Matthew has worked on a ton of iconic titles in the industry, such as Halo, Hogwarts Legacy, Marvel Midnight Suns, XCOM 2, Civilization 6, and more. Not only has he made his mark on the industry by working on such amazing titles, but he has also given back to the community in the form of mentorship and teaching. If you wanna hear from somebody who knows what they're doing, Matthew's your guy. <laughs> so let's get started and dive into his journey. Sure. Well, hi, uh, I'm Matthew Keene. Uh, that was a wonderful intro. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, I guess uh, a little bit about me. I actually didn't start out in games. I actually started out in VFX and film in New York City, uh, working on uh, sort of like lower uh, level projects uh, like uh, <laughs> Mortal Instruments, City of Bones, which is kind of an interesting Twilight knockoff movie that I started like kind of my film career with, um, bounced around, did a lot of commercial work. Um, and then I found my way into games after wanting something a little more uh, stable and something a little more consistent. For those who don't know, and or maybe those who do, the film industry is one that kind of works contractually. So you kind of work from project to project to project. So once the project wraps, you're unfortunately kind of looking for another job if you're not lucky enough to kind of work for one of the bigger studios. So for myself, I needed something a little more consistent. So early on in my career, I made the choice to kind of switch over to real time and, and go into games because studio life is is a, is a much more uh, pleasurable one and one that I can kind of like bank on always being there. So that's kind of how I found my way into, into games and uh, started my uh, journey doing some freelance work in games uh, and then found my way uh, to 2K, more specifically for Axis, uh, where I spent uh, over eight years of my career just working there on titles uh, such as Civilization VI, XCOM 2, Marvel Midnight Suns, and a couple of others that unfortunately never saw the light of day. But um, since then, uh, I've gone on to work for Certain Affinity, like you just said, uh, where I am now the... I, the 
technical title is senior lead character artist. Not you don't need to like redo anything there. It's just that's just the official title. Uh, it just means I'm good at being a lead, I guess. I don't know. Uh, where uh, I've led uh, the character production for certain affinity on games like Hogwarts Legacy, and I'm currently leading the uh, an unannounced IP uh, currently that's of our own making. So that's kind of the whole general gist of of things truncated. <laughs> Fantastic. You guys hear that senior lead, really good at being a lead. <laughs> <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit about the beginning of your career, especially switching from films to games. I know that nowadays it's pretty difficult to get a start in, in the games industry. You know, it seems every job posting needs, oh, hey, we need a junior, but also we need you to have sh 10 shipped titles and 13 years of experience. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got your foot in the door? Oh, geez. Uh, how I got my foot in the door, uh, pr actually, probably through Pixelogic uh, back in the day or Maxon now, but uh, doing some of the ZBrush beta work uh, that kind of went public very early on in my career um, and allowed me some access to some companies and people that were aware of myself. I got uh, published early on in CG Artist Magazine, which I don't even know if that exists anymore, but that was like an old school like magazine back in the day, back when like paper was still a thing. Uh, you know, so I got I got published in in 3D Artist Magazine a couple of times, and that kind of got uh, eyes on sort of my portfolio and my portfolio of work, uh, and that's sort of how I kind of broke in. Um, from a personal standpoint, uh, I was just always working you know um when i was in college uh i kind of had a sense of where i wanted to go um i'm a illustrator by trade so that was sort of my my degree was sort of in illustration so i was kind of thinking initially that i was going to be a cartoonist or an illustrator or like a print illustrator of that kind of thing um and i found uh 3d kind of early into that exploration and it grabbed me in a way that no other medium had at that point so uh when i found it I kind of became obsessed with it and I couldn't like stop doing it. So uh, ZBrush and Maya and and any other program I could get my hands on, um, I was doing modeling and animating from a very, very, very early stage, even if it wasn't required for the class that I was doing. And I was always trying to find ways of like working 3D kind of like into the assignments, so to speak. So when it came time for, you know, graduating, actually it was around my junior year that I actually started to work part time in the industry because of that, because I was just sort of doing work adjacent to my school work that um, I saw other people doing, basically. This was, of course, during the time of the forums. So, you know, going on Zebra Central or, you know, going on, uh, you know, Polycount or that sort of thing was sort of the, the thing to do back then. And uh, I'm kind of very grateful for that, because without those sites, I don't know if I would have had the kind of direction I needed to sort of make the the school adjacent work that I needed to make to get myself into the position that I was in to get hired. Um, hope that answers that question. Of I can keep course. going. <laughs> no, no, you, you just do as much as you want. So I loved hearing about that because that perfectly balanced or perfectly echoes my own philosophy, which is the school's education will get you really far. The school's education will give you the fundamentals and also a lot of networking opportunities and just basic lessons that you need to take, such as, you know, how to be a decent human being, how to increase your reputation. But a lot of times it's what you do on the outside, your own pursuits that will take you to that next level and oh, sure. elevate you above your peers to some degree in order to get noticed and get your foot in the door, uh, which is what I did in college as well. And one of the biggest mistakes you can make 
whether taking an online course or going to college is to expect everything to be handed to you. Oh yeah. Right. On Absolutely. a platter. Absolutely. Um, even though the teachers, including myself included, I'm a college professor, right? Uh, we have your best uh, interests in mind, but you still need to be able to like grab your interests and go out and make those connections and things like that. So, well, yeah. it, and always be questioning them too, right? Like, I mean, any professor, even, even with the best of intentions are always going to be, you know, they're, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to, you know, ask you to do things that maybe aren't that helpful. You know, I, I did a, the portfolio killer, killer portfolio thing for, for a while at GDC for a number of years of the the panel, not the panel side, but the portfolio review side. And, it was always interesting to me when I would have students come into this thing and, and I would see their portfolio and it would be one that I would have feedback on. And I would say like, okay, well, how much time do you have left to graduate? And they'd always say like, oh, I'm about to graduate right now. And you look at the portfolio and you're like, well, who, who directed you to make this portfolio decision here? Because it, it's not helpful in that regard. And so you don't, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult because, these professors, I'm sure, don't have malice intent when they're asking these students to do these kind of portfolios or do a, a reel or do something like that that they think genuinely will help them get a job. I, I, I do not believe there's any malintent in any one of these you know, schools or, or anything like that. However, you do run into issues a lot of times where sometimes the knowledge of these professors tend to be historic in nature, right, where they tend to have um, experience that can be sometimes five to maybe 10 years dated, you know, and, and so what their expectations are maybe aren't what is the current expectations. Again, through no, you know, malice of their own, it's just the nature of the game. You know, once you, a lot of these professors, once you start focusing on teaching, you know, the professional work can sometimes fall away. That's just the way things work, you know? And so, uh, like I said, I don't hold anyone to, to any sort of negative account. Um, but that's why it is important to have a, a bit of a questioning mind when you are getting this information. Like you said, don't just take it wholesale. Like it, it really is important that you do your own sort of backing research. And it can be somewhat counterintuitive, right? Because you are paying for this class. You're paying for the school because you're trying in, in essence to kind of achieve this education you would not be able to get otherwise. But I kind of feel like art school in a lot of ways can be more useful in in like the networking that you you make at the school as opposed to the education that you're receiving from the school like that's what i got out of my art school was the friends and the connections and the 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 uh i think the support and the environment that allowed you to kind of fail and fail fast and make mistakes because there was no real serious accountability when you're kind of like <laughs> learning and making your portfolio so true and so that's where like art school comes in 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 handy but when if you're if you're talking like technical art or technical art knowledge or really learning, you know, structured, you know, blah, 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 blah. I think a few schools are really good at that. But I think, you know, if you really want to get that sort of level of education, I'm a big believer in, I'm biased, but I'm a big believer in mentorships. I'm a big believer in like ateliers. I'm a big believer in sort of go that old school master apprentice kind of relationship. If you're looking for something sort of along those, those lines, um, it's, I think, really important and also important too. not to kind of run on a tangent here, but um, I always found in, in art school, like the commercial artists and the fine artists had two very kind of different tracks that they were sort of on all the time. And this is kind of regardless of, of whatever school you go to. But there's always even the fine art professors and the commercial art professors, they tend they tend to kind of view things slightly differently. 
And so if there's any like nugget of information I can give a, a, an art student right now who's in the commercial art track. So illustration, graphic design, 3D, game development, or, or any of the nature where um, the, the end goal is not necessarily your own artistic vision, but an interpretation of someone else's and a regurgitation of such. Don't lose sight of your own sort of personal artistic vision. I think that's really, really important. Something that fine artists and and in art school tend to focus on, especially for their like senior thesis, is their artist statement. It's a big, big thing that they work on for many months and many semesters. And, and that artist statement is sort of a, a a glimpse into who that person is as 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 an artist and 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 the philosophy that they're bringing to their work. Commercial artists don't really have anything like that they don't really have a a, a a guiding point to focus on like an artist statement right it, it in fact it's almost counterintuitive to the job you know it's it's almost like well it doesn't really matter in some ways if some people may think this like like what your artist statement is please just interpret as you said concept and make make the thing but i actually think like having an, an, an artist statement even as a commercial artist especially if you're a student crazy important because what you bring the, the soul of the art that you bring, it'll filter through everything, no matter what the concept is, no matter what the, 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 the ask is on that team, having a tent pole to kind of hang things on that are like, this is me. This is what I believe in. This is the art that I want to do. This is what I want to say, man. It, it, it's a, it's a massive guiding light, especially because there's, there's thousands of projects to work on. There's thousands of, of, of different directions that you can go in this industry, whether it's film or games or fine art or anything like that. So having kind of an, an internal artist statement is it'll help you filter out a lot of the fluff that is in this industry and help you pick projects, pick teams, even pick companies that really align to what you want to do. You know, um, and you may find that like it might actually cross out bigger companies that you you maybe were thinking you wanted to work at, but really the the core fundamentals of what that company is or the games that they work on they don't align with your artist statement, and you actually will end up not being happy at those places. And you know, if you don't have that thought ahead of time and you don't have that artist statement ready, or you know, when we're talking about kind of artistic values into yourself, you don't have that understood. You will, like many artists and many engineers and many people in this industry, will find themselves at a studio or on a project that, you know, they're kind of stuck on and it, and it doesn't make them happy. And, you know, you, you never want to learn that lesson after the fact. You know, you want to, you want to sort of know ahead of time what it is that's important to you. That was a lot. Would, I'm sorry. I just <laughs> Oh, no, don't, don't apologize. I would even add to that that um, having a clear heart, soul to your art, something you want to say with your art a way you want your art to look might even help with when it comes to burnout, right? Yeah. Because burnout, like I said in the last podcast, for those of you who are listening then, go watch that too, is not doing too much. It's doing too little of the things that actually bring you joy and passion and love and like that burning, you know, feeling in your heart. Yeah. So if you start stripping away what made you want to be an artist in the first place, the stories you wanted to tell, and you just start making art too commercial, which I did, FYI, I did that in college and after as well. Uh, and you only put in your portfolio what you think people want to see. Um, then you might end up in that place of danger when it comes to, you know, losing all meaning. Why am I even doing this in the first place? Yeah. You know? It's something I've ran into. You know, I, I, I say that as kind of a cautionary tale because I was that guy who sort of found 
out not necessarily the hard way but like you know you find yourself maybe on different projects or on different situations that they're not bad by any stretch of the imagination but they don't they don't appeal or are suited for you and it's one of those things where you know you don't know what you don't know sort of thing so you know it's hard to kind of predict if something will work or something won't work um but you know i didn't put the time in to really think initially what was important to me and what was, you know, necessary for my own happiness as a creative. And now I have, like after I experienced sort of the burnout that you just talked about, I did sit down and I actually sort of began to pen, you know, what, what was the thing that I wanted to sort of focus on as a, as a creative and, and what were the kinds of projects that I felt, embodied those ideas and i've been a lot happier since <laughs> i would maybe even you know add that to some degree this is a lot easier said than done especially like once you have a stable career you have food on the table yeah. rent paid <laughs> you know because then you can explore more what art means to you and return to your roots because to some degree it's not always a bad strategy to match your art style to the companies you want to work at, yes. what's in demand yeah. at the time. So if you're starting out, then you also have to do that. So you have to balance, you know, um, you're not going to make nothing but cute little ponies, you know, and apply at, you know, uh, <laughs> Naughty Dog or yeah. something like that, you know. So it has to at the end of the day, it still has to match and it has to make sense because the hiring person will want somebody who can do their style and their subject matter. For right? sure. <laughs> and, and, and along those same lines too, like it even no, like, so there are people that I met like early on in their career, like through the portfolio review stuff where they were doing sort of attempts at hyperrealism, but like their personal work was like very stylized and like, you know, more playful kind of things. And I remember having conversations with them. I was just like, where, like, why is there this kind of disparity between the two? And it's like, well, I, you know, I'm doing this to kind of get hired at XYZ studio where they do X, Y, Z. And it's like, okay, but like you're doing your personal work, you're doing this other kind of thing that would probably be more applicable at these other studios, you know? So it's kind of like, even, even from that standpoint, it's like, don't just pigeonhole your, like, like go wide just because it'll help you get hired. Cause it may get you hired, which is great, but it might put you on a weird track that is once you're on, it's very difficult to sort of pivot off of it as well. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, we're in an interesting industry. It's a very, it's very weird, you know, um, it's kind of a unique situation. So, but I totally get, I totally agree what you're saying. Like go wide, get, get hired, get your foot in the door for sure. Aim your artwork at the company you want to be hired for. Just make sure that that like align it. Like if you're a stylized artist, maybe don't aim for naughty dog, right? Like don't aim for <laughs> yeah. that, like that route. If that's if like your happiness lies in like stylization and like playful forms, right? Vice versa. Don't aim for something like a blizzard. If your heart is in like hyper tertiary detail and like, you know, hyper realism, that sort of thing. Photorealism. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. So I don't know if you've ever come across this. I have a problem with this with my mentees and students. It's almost universal. Everybody trying to make it, in, for the first time in the industry is only aiming for the top 1% of most notorious and high competition yes. companies. Yes. Everybody's like, I've made three portfolio pieces. I think I'm ready to apply at Blizzard for a mid-level position, right? <sighs> yeah. And I try to convince them, like, you're competing with people who have been in the industry for 10 years for those jobs. Like, open up your minds to indie studios, smaller, mid-sized 
serious games even vr there's so many spots where you can land pay your rent get experience right yeah and then then take it at the next step after. if you want right there there are a lot yeah. of people like i so i did like uh like so, like twelve minutes with with sort of the Nomada and, and Annapurna. Like that was a small double A project. One of the most fun I've had on a project, right? It was a very small little thing, and and there's there's a lot of joy I think that you can find even in the double A space. I think that's a we're seeing especially with things like Game Pass and things like sort of the. I don't want to say the plateauing of quadruple A, but like you're you're seeing the success criteria. Um, begin to level out on these really high profile projects, you know, and, and what's happening, I think, at least from my own perspective is with the advent of like a $70 title, that's a lot of money to ask a family to spend multiple times a month, essentially on, on a game. And so what you have is these blockbuster titles, these, you know, 160 to $200 million projects that they need to hit when they come out. And when they come out, they're in a sea of competition and that family is going to pick one one game to get and if you're not in that group you're not gonna you know do it basically it's not you know and and then you could be you know somewhat successful but you know to stockholders it's not a blockbuster explosion success and so that's why i think you're seeing a lot of these double a studios and this double a market this indie market start to really begin to explode it's been exploding for a couple of years now but now it's really blossoming and really beginning to sort of you know, claim their own section of the industry as like, no, no, we're here. We're not this lesser than kind of thing. In many ways, we're as high a quality, if not, you know, maybe even higher uh, than some of these like larger scale AAA, quadruple A titles. But the budgets are lower, the team sizes are smaller. And so the success criteria of these games tend to be much lower. You can sell a lot fewer copies and still be crazy profitable. And the devs working on these titles can be living a very, very comfortable life because of that. You know, um, I just want to add, it just got me thinking, sorry. I just like, I just want to add on to that. That was just something that, no. yeah. Um, so I 100% agree. You know, I'm from serious games and there were so many benefits, good pay. I never worked more than 40 hours a week, you know, things like that. So, you know, it was, it was worth it. And nobody wants to list, hear that. Everybody's like, Nope, blizzard crunch or death. That's my <laughs> yeah. only two options. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, to switch gears, sure. can you walk us through your creative process when it comes to designing and creating a new character? Oh, um, for personal or for professional? Um, which one do you think is more applicable? Both? I'll go. I'll do both real quick. I'll both? do. I'll do both real quick. So, um, if it's a personal uh, project and I'm going through uh, uh, a character that I'm going to make, I tend to like to not rely on anyone else's concept but my own so i tend to like to concept in 3d so i do something that uh, i've done on stream a little bit which is called unconscious sculpting which is sort of you turn on uh music put a sphere uh and it's one of my sculpt from a sphere kind of things i just sculpt and i sculpt and i sculpt and i don't know where it's going and eventually at a certain point in the sculpt either i fail at like the you know 20 to 40 minute mark scrap it start over or at that point, I have a moment in which I, it's kind of hokey, but uh, I, I say that the character starts to talk to me. Like eventually I start to, to have a, a dialogue with the character that I'm beginning to make. And, and that character is sort of informing me what needs to kind of happen on it. 
Um, and from there, uh, it becomes sort of a look dev process. So once I, once I get sort of the, the sculpt in a really nice rough spot, I kick it over to Marmoset. I do some lighting tests. I do some form exploration just with lighting. I, I'm a big believer that um, if, if forms don't read even from a block in or rough stage well uh, with the lighting, that there's really no amount of refinement you can do to sort of like, you can't like, you can't invent primary forms when you're on the tertiary like stage. So really mm -hmm. making sure that that block in and rough sculpt reads well, renders well. And then from there, either kick it into painter, do some quick material look dev stuff ahead of time. Uh, I'm actually a big believer in doing that, then retopoing uh, to the final like real time asset. And actually professionally, I do very similarly like what that is. Uh, I just have a concept team also supporting me when I when I do that. So uh, a lot of the projects that I've worked on, I'm either adjacent to the concept team or I'm actually over the concept team to sort of help facilitate the concept design of these characters. Um, but that's it's a very similar process, right? We do a thumbnail sketch or they give me a rough block in of an idea or a couple of them. I prefer working as a lineup. So like if I'm designing a character for a game, I know there's going to be a lot of back and forth with the art director. So for me, I like to have like four or five different thumbnail options ready to go to have a dialogue, uh, have my dialogue with the art director, uh, block in the forms. Before I go any further, we kick that over to the lead animator. I want to get a rough, what I call a dirty rig on it, uh, get it moving, get it functioning, see how it is again from the rough form idea before I even like begin to even think about sculptural details, before I even begin to think about materials, like we're just, we're talking like rough blocking, you know, mud forms, essentially just moving around the screen. Because if we can make that believable, if we can make that applicable to the thing that we're trying to do, it makes all of our jobs, you know, so much easier moving forward, essentially. Um, and yeah, so once I get approval on that, then it kind of kicks back over to my team. Uh, we begin sort of the refinement process. I do something called a blockout plus, which is essentially a uh, furthered sculpt with an auto retopo. I then kick that into painter and do a really rough material pass on that character that allows animation to kind of see it in a more finalized way. But it also allows VFX to begin working on the character because now we have sort of like color block ins or if we're doing, say, like a layered material system like that we did in, in Hogwarts Legacy, it allows us to kind of begin to sort of think through that process as well with sort of the auto UVs that are also generated. Um, and then from there, it becomes a ping pong match, basically, where we're sort of kicking the character back and forth, back and forth. Each time the cyclical nature refines it, each time we do a pass, it refines it and refines it and refines it. And then eventually we get to a point where we're comfortable with it and we stop and then we leave it for a couple of months and then we come back to polish at the end of the game. And we say, hey, is this 80% shippable and good enough or do we need to kind of tweak things and kick it up a notch, basically? So that's sort of been my philosophy and process. You know, games and film, it's a team process. I think games almost more so in some ways because film kind of separates concept and art and kind of its own category. And then like rigging and animation and modeling even are like like separate kind of entities. In games, I view it as a very sort of holistic animal. So I don't want to be doing anything on my end that like animation isn't aware of, the VFX isn't aware of, so that we're all kind of putting our thumbprints on this thing together so that by the time it's in the game by the time it's like on the screen and it's rendering with the lighting and the materials one no one's surprised by what they're seeing and two we all feel like we've kind of given life to this character together and and no one's kind of like bummed <laughs> in any way you know
I have so, like I, I I've been making make mental notes. I'm like, that's a great point. That's another great point. That's another <laughs> great point. So I love what you said about the in- intuition parts of sculpting, like how you just let your what was it, consciousness sculpting? Unconscious sculpting. Unconsciousness. Yeah. So I do that. Sometimes I tell my stream audience, they're like, "Why'd you do that?" And I'm like, "The piece told me it needed it." Yeah. Or like the piece it told me it wanted it, and it sounds a little what is she talking to the piece? But like, it's your intuition, right? Yeah. It's almost like you're, you're channeling all these images and ideas you've had your whole life into that yeah. one moment of like this choice um, that that is very intuitive in the moment. And that's when I'm personally I make my best work. It's never the project that I'm overthinking. It's yeah. always the project that I'm letting my intuition and my like artistic vision subconsciously drive. Yes. Um, yeah. So super awesome. And also, I love your process of iterative design, which is, you know, basically what you're doing when you are doing a rough pass, sending it off to Retopo rig, sending it off to other teams, improving it, doing it again, improving mm-hmm. it, doing it again, improving, doing it again, right? Yeah. Iterative design, for those of you who don't know, it's like a process of ideate, build, and test, Yes. right? And you loop it. And the more times you loop it, the better the outcome. Exactly. And it's one of the best ways you, you watching can actually save time and budget in the future projects, your future projects, to actually get better results, um, especially because you can stop looping at any time yes. and, and theoretically ship if you need to, Yep. you know, um, which is fabulous <laughs> for those of you guys who yeah. have been in production, you know, you know, that you need a plan B sometimes. Well, that's just, know? it catches failures really quickly, right? So like if you yeah. have this mm-hmm. like cyclical process in which you're looping and you're looping and you're looping, eventually you'll hit a break point, right? And, and hopefully that's within the first or two loops, you hit that break point and you know, okay, I'm going to now revisit this idea from the, from, if sometimes from scratch, if I need to solve it as much, the worst situations you are, you know, that you can be in sometimes as like a character artist is you have a character that's basically done and then animation or even marketing or cinematics like needs this thing to do a thing that it's not designed to do. And you're like, okay, well, now we're in a tough spot. <laughs> like, how, I, I can't revisit this character. It's kind of like done. Um, and so that's when you have to kind of, I guess, get inventive and creative in those situations. But it's super helpful. I even include marketing in those calls, too, so that they see from an, an early standpoint what the character could be. Um, not necessarily to garner feedback from marketing, because, you know, I, I, I'm a very strong believer that, you know, it you don't want like a ton of voices like going at the same time. It, it you know, you do need to sort of like no design by committee. Yes. You don't right? want design by committee. It's a, it's a very important thing, especially in the beginning. That's why I'm a big believer in sort of like a, a hierarchical structure for teams. Like I do believe in leads and I do believe in, you know, art directors. And I believe, I believe in that structure because it's important to sort of funnel communication and a good lead will take his team's feedback and present the needs of the team in that meeting, you know? Um, so, I do believe it helps clarify a lot of the communication, especially in the beginning. And then as it goes forward, then you can kind of incorporate the feedback from like marketing or cinematics or, or so on and so forth. Sort of the, the adjacent teams to the, the, the base creation process. What advice do you have for aspiring character artists who are just starting out in the industry? Um, so uh, make your artist statement. That's a big one for me. So understand what drives you as an artist. That goes for any art professional basically starting out or, or otherwise um, for character art in general um, have a really good understanding of foundations is incredible. Um, I, you know, it's, I'm just, everyone says this, but it's cause it's true, you know, like 
you might have some people here rolling their eyes when they hear that, but like your foundations level work, can you draw? Do you understand composition? Do you understand form theory? Do you understand general anatomy? Can you, you know, base level art 101 stuff? It's incredibly important. It is probably more important that you understand that than understanding like some sort of weird hyper-technical software thing. Like I can teach you ZBrush. I can teach you Maya. I can even go through and do some blueprint work with you in Unreal. But if you don't have a core artistic base or a foundation to sort of build that off of, that's incredibly difficult to teach because there's there's so much nuance when it comes to that side of it. So if you're a new character artist just starting out and you feel like there's maybe some weaknesses on the foundation stuff, get that short up real and you and you'll never be done right i'm always exploring anatomy and exploring form theory and doing all that stuff it's never going to be a thing that you finish doing but make sure that is a major 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 focus um also kind of along the same lines of that is don't hyper focus in too much on one pipeline um, this is really important for people who are just starting out. They tend to learn like one way of doing things and then they think that's the only way of doing the thing. Uh-huh. Um, be open to new pipelines, be open to, you know, using, you know, what you think may be old techniques, but in different ways and in new ways. It's amazing how it's going to sound weird, but a lot of these techniques are improvements on the old ones in terms of speed but the end results tend to actually be remarkably similar depending on the pipelines and the techniques that you you do. And so it's really important, especially if you're starting out, to really listen to what the lead and what even the lead technical artists and all these other people are asking of you. Don't push back on pipelines that you've either never worked in or you think, you know, you know a better way of doing something. Try doing it first their way. Make sure you understand like why, because it may be answering problems that you're unaware of, right? There could be situations with how the engine is set up if they're using a homebrewed engine, or there could be interesting, unique design things that they have to fix by doing it this way that your brand new Houdini-based you know, pipeline is not going to allow the solving of it may it may and i'm not saying you know after doing it a while if you still think you're right then sure bring it up to your lead but i've always found especially with some of the newer students coming out of school there's because pipeline fluency is becoming much more common in some of these art degrees now you have students graduating with a general understanding of how to do a, a specific thing at least how their professor taught them to do you never want to run into a situation where as you're explaining it to a new hire, like how to do something, the response being like, oh, well, I know how to do it this way. And it's like, great. That's not what I'm talking about. though. <laughs> like, let's try it. Let's try it this way first. And then let's explore your option. A good lead will listen to his listen to his team. Like if, if I have someone who, you know, has a new way of doing things, wants to show me how to do it. I'm going to listen. It will never not be a situation where I never not listen to a new idea. I do at least expect them to explore the way we did do it first before we jump into like changing it or upending something, you know, it's, it's easier to say that than to practice it. I know because I know a lot of new people working in the industry are very excited. They're very excitable. They want to, you know, get in, get their fingerprints on things, but, and this is something that I'm just thinking back on my own career 
it's it's difficult to even realize from a school perspective just how many people work on a project or right? just how many people work on these games and how what you think is maybe a small change to the pipeline could affect 20, 30, even 40, maybe even 100 people their day to day and how they do things. I always say that learning pipelines and software is its own skill. I even have it on my resume, <laughs> you know, like I can learn this stuff fast because I've done it so much and, and that makes you flexible, adaptable, you know, and it's a huge thing in this industry. There used to be stories, guys, of like uh, studios that would switch from Unity to Unreal. I don't know if you've ever heard those stories um, between projects yeah. and then lay off the whole team because the whole team didn't know Unreal. Yeah. Right. Um, so being adaptable and being open to learning is essential. Yeah. And it's a skill on its own. Um, and once you learn the fundamentals of software, to be honest, it's uh, translates very well between most yeah. software. You know, sure. uh, everybody's like, oh, I don't have money for Maya. I'm going to learn Blender. Is that OK? And I'm like, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. of course, it's fine. Do it. You know, don't stop yourself just because of this one like roadblock. I can tell you right now, as a you know AAA studio for co-development and solo development like Certain Affinity, we use Blender. Like there is Blender usage happening in our studio. Most companies that I've worked with and have had the pleasure of working with, even from a co-development standpoint, the Blender usage is throughout. Like you know, it's it's a thing now. It's a tool that is 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 very accepted in in the pipeline. Usually. Maya is used as kind of a hub software. So like do whatever you want to do. And that's sort of how I run my pipelines because I'm, I'm a Maya guy, but I also know animation functions through Maya. So my view is whatever the next step in the pipeline uses is where the asset needs to live for the previous part of the pipeline. So for me, it's like do whatever you want to do in any other software like Blender. Just make sure it, it gets into Maya at the very yeah. end, you know, so that everyone else can kind of interpret it. But um, yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of Blender. I think uh, it's. I mean, I <laughs> I don't use it, so let me just clarify that. I don't want anyone like you know, sort of saying like because I have made some comments in the past that was a little anti Blender, just because you know I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm hot and cold with it. Let's let me be a little more honest on that. But um, I'm a big fan of what Blender represents. I love the idea of open source software. I love the idea of democratizing 3D. I just love it. I hate software that is unachievable for most people. I hate the idea that, you know, you can lord this idea of being an artist or a 3D developer over someone because they don't financially have the ability to kind of get to that point. It's that's gross to me. That's just that's that just is a is a terrible way of functioning. So I'm I, I'm in love with with anything open source in terms of like pipeline wise. Even game engines yeah. like Godot, I think is 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 phenomenal. Like well, it's a new game engine that's open source right now that I've actually been following the development of. Great open source game engine that's 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 making a lot of strides. And uh, you know, I think it's awesome. I think all that stuff is really cool. Um something always boggled my mind, which is as I was entering the industry and even after that, I noticed that a lot of software doesn't have an educational license. And if it does, it's still expensive yeah. um, or a non-commercial version. You know, like I didn't get Marmoset or Marvelous Designer until like this year after many years yeah. in the industry because I didn't want to pay. Uh, and it's that simple. But by software companies making their software accessible to new users, students, hobbyists, they're actually going to be shoring up their user base as we go. If you give 
college students and, and interns and all that stuff, free product, they're going to take that with them into, when they come into the industry, yeah. which is what's happening with Blender. Yeah. It's literally happening with Blender. Blending, Blender is being brought on the backs of the people who were educated yeah. with it, right? And they are finding little spots to plug Blender in. And eventually Blender is going to be very industry standard, probably. I think, I think it's already is were in some ways. Like I, I know yeah. a lot of hard surface artists that swear by like box modeler and all these other like box cutter rather, like all these other like Blender only like plugins to do a lot of their hard surface work, at least in terms of weapons, art, vehicle art, environment art, uh, you know, hard surface stuff is a lot of it's blender and it's good. It's like, I mean, it's, you, you can't, that's the thing. Polygon is polygon is polygon, right? And FBX is an FBX is an FBX. Like if you give me two FBXs and you tell me one came from blender and one came from Maya, <laughs> Short of maybe some like gunk saved in the file, I won't know. I won't know. Like, what I don't even check for the gunk. I'm not going to look in the meta of the file. (laughs) (laughs) Ain't nobody got time for that. (laughs) (laughs) So, you've had a lot of experience mentoring, but also looking at portfolios, for example, at GDC. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if you've been able to notice the differences between who is able to make it and who isn't? And what are the most common mistakes that people are making before they can get into the industry that you've noticed? Um, well, it's hard for me to say if I can tell who's going to make it and who's not. I mean, I can, I, I, that's a hard, uh, for me, a hard way of putting that. I, I, cause I don't, you know, I think there it's, it's um, surprising sometimes, you know, I, I'm surprised all the time, like, <laughs> like by, by that stuff. So, but not so much predictive, but like historically, like if you've been able to follow up, oh yeah, yeah. notice the difference. It's like you so said, not predicting because it's it's kind of evil to even yeah. predict. You're <laughs> never gonna make it in this industry. Everybody's heard that, and everybody has that sore. I don't know in their spirit yeah. or something. So we don't do that. But yeah, historically. So I think one of the things that so to kind of call back to what I, I said earlier, right? Where, where I'm presented with a portfolio that I see needs work. When I see a portfolio that I think needs work, what I'm what I mean by that is, I see either a a very strong lack of foundation. So form theory is just all over the place. Um, composition and presenting of the models are all over the place. Um, that kind of stuff is really a telltale sign that that person maybe isn't where they need to be right now to kind of enter into the games industry or the film industry or any other industry. Um, another telltale sign for me is, uh, a portfolio that's too wide. So, uh, you know, there's, there's always a great idea of like, Hey, put a lot of stuff in your portfolio. You never know what a company's looking for. That is true. But there's also like putting too much in a portfolio. And I've run into this a lot where I see portfolios, even for people applying, not even just for the portfolio review, where they have just a ton of images that are completely different, right? So they'll, they'll be like environment and characters and a prop in there and, you know, something else and something else and a 2D oil painting. And it's like, well, okay, okay, hold on. You know, like what, what are you, what is your focus here? You know, like, what are we, what are we aiming for? Um, because the truth is a lot of times a company, and I think you even said something like this earlier where you, you do need to kind of be a little bit specific with what you're trying to achieve uh, with your portfolio. Cause a lot of times they have a cog, it's unfortunate to say, but they have a cog that needs filling, right? So they have an idea of what they're looking for and they need someone who can really clearly slot in to that, uh, to that peg. 
Um, and so having too varied a portfolio, I think, can actually hurt a lot of people. Um, having too many images of ranging quality also is a, a can be a real killer uh, because as great as maybe the first four images are or first four pieces, if you have like five, six and seven and they're not great, they're going to be looked at and, and sometimes even focused on of just like, well, wait, why are these even in this portfolio? Do they not know that these aren't of the same quality as the other one? You know, it, it begins to beget some really tough questions. Basically, if you don't want those questions being asked about you, maybe put less in. I hired a person, um, true story. I hired a person with four images in his portfolio Four. that was it. And they were great. There were four amazing pieces they were completely demonstrative of what we needed. So they had UVs and materials and everything. Like it, it showed that they knew the pipeline. They knew the fundamentals, but it was just four images. Like it was an art station. You open it up and it was one, two, three, four. That's it. It was like almost nothing there, but they were so good. Those four, we moved to higher because it, it just, like we didn't need to see anymore. It was just, we saw what we needed to see with those four images. So hopefully that answers that. Is that. So cool. yeah. Quality over quantity, oh, yes, right? For sure. What I always preach. Yeah. It is so heartbreaking to tell a person that they should consider. I never say you delete this. I always say you should consider removing this. Yeah. You know, in uh, their face, it's so heartbreaking because they have an emotional connection to the struggle, the history of that yeah. piece. But it's just dragging down their portfolio, yeah. right? So I always say, "Yo, you feel that strong about this piece? Just post it on Instagram." Nobody has to know. Just take it out of your yeah. portfolio, depending. You know, but also, I'm not the master of the truth. Want to keep it in? Do it. You probably will. It won't make a break anyway. Um, but uh, I really liked something you said. And I have a question. I don't know if you've been in this position before. But right now, I am working with seniors in the VR major at Ringling College. And I'm doing this assignment called professional prep, in which I just basically comb through resumes, portfolios and stuff like that, get them ready, and also ready to choose their next portfolio pieces that they're going to make in my class so that it makes sense. Like I have them researched, find data on what the employers are looking for, and then we make we follow through with the pieces. And some students, um, one student came up to me, and he asked for a meeting and he was like, I am getting rejected from every job. I apply it. So I, I had him list everything. He sent me an email and I was like, yeah, Niantic, all this stuff, like rejection, rejection, rejection. And everybody said the same thing, which was like, we had a better candidate that was more suited for our mm. needs. Look in his portfolio. It's so varied. It includes every single assignment he ever did for school, you know, uh, including stuff like typography, right. you know, almost like graphic design. And, um, I ask him, like, why, like, let's find focus. What do you want to do? He's between three things, the effects and two other things, right? And I'm like, we have to, at least for the time being, pick. Yeah. But then the student turns to me and says, I really can't pick. Like, right now, like, he, due to lack of experience, he cannot pick. And, how? like, I, I can't force somebody to pick. This is a huge decision. Oh, sure, yeah. Right? All I can do is kind of offer guidance like, hey, you know, like VFX is a good place to start. It's in demand, things like that. I can offer that kind of stuff, but it's so hard. So like, what do you do if you arrive at a situation like that where there are so many options and the, the portfolio is split because the person is split, you know? So that's the artist statement idea, right? Like that person needs to then sit down because like, hey, I get it, right? Like I started in film, right? Like I thought I was going to be, mm -hmm 
you know, uh, not even modeling. I was even looking into animation. Like I was in, a, I was in a totally different frame of mind. I started doing illustration. I thought it was going to be two D. You know, um, but I think you know to to save myself a lot of pain. What I wished I had done was really sit down and think about in a sort of weird, you know, predictive way, kind of reading the tea leaves, what I wanted the career to look like, basically. Not from even a position or discipline level, but like, what was I trying to say as a creative? What was important to me as a creative? What did I want to be known for? What did I want to be known for working on? What did I, and and again, not specific projects, but like projects that center around X, Y, and Z, that sort of thing, you know? Um, once I had a better understanding of that, it made that decision process. And again, I had that happen to me midway through my career, but had I done the beginning, oh man, I would save myself a ton of time, but, um, it allowed me to, at least now I can talk much more confidently of what I want to do. Um, knowing that that want is worthy of something and that I, I can say like, Hey, I want to do this and I don't want to do that. Even though that thing I don't want to do could be incredibly profitable and could be incredibly hot and great. You know, it just won't make me happy. And so it's like, I know now not to take those opportunities. Um, so I think that person essentially needs to kind of sit down and do that where it's like, okay, I have three different paths I need to go down or I can go down. Cool. As a creative, what do you want to say? Like, what are you hoping to say? And then apply it to each path, right? Like say topography, right? Say I want to work on projects that forward the medium, whatever that medium is, right? So that could be a tentpole of my art statement. Like the projects that I want to work on, the career that I want to build around is based on the idea of forwarding the concept of the medium. Um, that, I'm using an example because that is one of the things that I have put in my own artist statement, right? Like so what does that look like in topography? What does that look like in VFX? What does that look like in whatever path that person can go down? Cool. Which one of those three realities now sounds the most appealing? Even if even if you don't know still then, you will start to lean towards one of the three. In which case, just like you said, start there. Because you can you can always switch later, but it's so much easier to switch when you have something on your resume than if you don't have anything on your resume. So that's, so I would say the artist statement is really helpful there because that that'll help that person, I think, begin to focus in on what matters to them beyond just getting hired. So Ringley pre-college is seeking visionary VR students with the story and drive to succeed. Do you see yourself creating a three-dimensional, computer-generated virtual reality environment where users can be immersed within your imagined or simulated worlds? Is it games, training, or emotional sport? What inspires you to do this work? If this describes you, we want to hear your story. What excites you about these possibilities? Submit your 500-word story in writing or video by March 3rd to mmurphy at c.ringling.edu. Three selected entries will be awarded $1,000 each towards pre-college 2023 tuition. One selected entry will be awarded a full scholarship to pre-college 2023. In accepting the award, you fully agree to enroll in the virtual reality immersion. Visit www.fringling.edu slash pre-college and click on connect with us to book an online info session. And make sure to submit your written or video story as described above. Back to our programming. 
I've had to do so many moments of this literally when when I think of sitting down and thinking like I I've done meditations like on these topics and I'm somebody who is split myself and I've been able to make a living out of it you know uh tech art character art development I do coding on projects I do environment arts you know and I was able to find my little slot which was smaller teams because smaller teams let you wear multiple yeah. hats right yeah uh, and I, ha I also had to live with the guilt and the pain of seeing everybody else who specialized become better at me at each one of their specialties that I was practicing a thousand times faster than me, mm. you know, um, you know, like I wanted to be a character artist, all my <laughs> peers who focused, they became amazing character artists, like five times faster than I did. Yeah. So, you know, there is a place for the personality that can't pick as long as you are also able to forge a strategy for your career that's. Uh, allows you to do so yeah. you know i found my position honestly i wouldn't change yeah. it i've gotten over it you know i wouldn't change it because i have so much job stability yeah. like i could land on any team at any position because i practice so many different things right on yeah you know i have that confidence now which is really nice but it sounds too. like you enjoy so is wearing multiple hats too right yeah. i do i love it yeah that could be part of your artist statement you know like i want to be yeah. integral into every aspect of the pipeline like that is that is a true statement that's like hey that is a that is core to me so it's like great now i know moving forward any new company or project that i want to be a part of i want to be able to put my thumbprint on a bunch of different things not just one but a bunch and just like you said a smaller team definitely allows for that much more so than you know, an Ubisoft with a thousand, two thousand people working on a single project or something. Like yeah. That. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Hey, we need like Robert to finish this character. Well, Robert's busy doing the lighting yeah. on this level. <laughs> you know, that wouldn't work out. Um, so looking at your portfolio, it's very clear that you're very prolific. I was looking at your art station and I was scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, right? Because there's so much work on there. Um, and a lot of it's personal yes. work. How do you balance? personal work, work, and life? And how do you stave off burnout? Oh, I don't. <laughs> uh, there's no magic sauce in that one. There's I don't I get burned out like any, anybody else. Um, I think, um, in truth, I, I've actually had a really interesting relationship with my portfolio. So like, I actually I so I do post more personal work than I do professional work. I am going to be putting up some of my Hogwarts legacy stuff soon up there as well as some of my midnight sun stuff. Um, again, I'm not, I'm not hyper pushing to do that though, in some ways, because I think my, when you're on the project, and I'm sure you feel this way too. It's like your relationship to the work is a little different than with like a personal piece in some ways. Um, and so even if you did work on a character from soup to nuts, which, which I will be posting some of that soon, you still have an it's a different kind of relationship with that with that piece essentially so i do tend to lean more towards the personal work i can express more of myself in that and i think if i'm looking for a job you know or looking for a new project or something else like that i can better demonstrate myself through the through the you know personal work I do also not publicly have a private portfolio that has all of my actual like work work stuff on there that I don't put up there. Um, so there it is there. I do when I do like talk to whoever recruiters or back in the day, like I would always send them that as well. Um, but to answer your question of how I split that up and how I like exist, <laughs> um, I struggle with it 
you know, in truth, I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, I am as much a, a workaholic as, as I think one can be. Uh, and it's something I've, I've definitely struggled with. It's something that has affected my life negatively, dr- dramatically. So, um, I've, I, I tend to be the kind of person who I put a lot of myself into the things that I do. And so to disconnect from that is difficult. It's incredibly difficult. And I've gotten really good at at least disconnecting from work and then like hyper funneling all of that energy into a personal piece, you know, and like really working on that. Um, But if I start to feel the burnout, which happens, you know, I can go sometimes months without making anything personal, you know, and, and it's the reality of it. You know, uh, what I tend to tell people who run into that situation and what I try to tell myself is that it's okay (laughs) that, that, you know, you need to have empathy for yourself sometimes that creativity isn't. Uh, a faucet that you can just turn on and off and inspiration isn't something that you can just manufacture like that. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a ebb and flow. It's a wave, you know, and, and sometimes it leaves you and that's okay. You know, it's okay. Uh, you know, I, I, I used to struggle with that and, and I've gotten better at accepting, accepting that. I think, you know, doing something creative every day, whether it's sculpting or doing like unreal, you know, engine work or doing even just a sketch. I think that is important just to kind of keep the hand and the mind going. But um, I feel, you know, just from my own personal relationship with it, that it, 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 it it's not so important that I, I produce something all the time, you know? Uh, so I just have to kind of let myself be not productive. Have <laughs> you ever guilt? Oh yeah. About- oh, every, yeah. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, but and that's, and so that's when I knew it was unhealthy, right? Like I, that's when I knew there was a sort of a situation that I needed to fix in which like I couldn't watch a TV show or I couldn't even go to the movies with friends or do something without feeling this pang of, of like, ah, I could be sculpting. <laughs> you know, Like, what am I doing? You know, like I could be, you know, editing a YouTube video right now. I could be doing like, I could be bettering my career. And it's like, yeah, but you know, you got to live too. And I wasn't thinking like that. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about the life of an artist. I was just thinking of, of the life of a professional and uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. You know, obviously you've kind of unfortunately tripped on something that is, is hitting me a little harder than I think I realized it was going to hit me. (laughs) You know, you're not the only one. I think this is a very common thread for a lot of people in our industry because Living in the United States, being in this particular industry, it's kind of like a perfect scenario uh, for becoming a workaholic or attracting workaholics that are naturally workaholic and tying our self-esteem and our sense of well-being to productivity. I don't know if you agree with that statement, but um, so I deal with it all the time, you know, um, in every possible way, you know, I, I worked so hard and it feels like it's never over, you know, and lately I've been hyper aware of like, is this right? Is this how I want my life to go? Cause I'm naturally a workaholic. I'm very interested in working, you know, like I'm very interested in making progress. It actually makes me feel very yeah. good, you know? Um, 
But at the same time, it comes at a, such a cost to keep doing it over and over and over again every day. It feels unrelenting, yeah. right? And that's how I, I sometimes I'll, I'll go up to my friends and I'm like, my, the schedule I've created for myself, one word, unrelenting, yeah. you know? Um, and I have that guilt of like, am I missing out on stuff? You know, sure, working more, I make more money. Am I spending it? Like, I'm not. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not traveling. I'm not going out with my friends. Like, what is it all for? And so that's kind of like, you know, something for us all to consider as artists and working on that guilt. That guilt is killer. Even if you take a day off, if you're feeling guilty, it doesn't yeah. count, right? Basically. Yeah. <laughs> so you're just wasting time at the yeah. end of the day. Well, yeah, I mean, just, just yeah, like you said, like, get okay with not. It's we. It's so weird, right? Because it's so counterintuitive to what a lot of people say, right? Where it's just like you got to be working all the time, you got to be hustling, you got to get this, you know. And that is true to a point, you know. Like that is absolutely true to a point. But man, when you when you do this for a while, it, it like I, it has a psychological effect. It does. It, it, you know, even on the best of projects it has a psychological effect working that hard that consistently especially i think this is where it kind of becomes interesting is is especially in the creative field where you are asked all the time to put your almost emotions and yourself into the work that you're doing so much to make it good that you know yeah it, it, <laughs> the line almost kind of has to be blurred a little bit, you know, where it's like, you know, personal work, 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 you know, where does that line, you know, begin and end? And yeah, it's a tough thing. It's a, it's a really difficult thing. You know, the, Oh, I love that you touched on this, the emotional impact of our work. It's what makes me the most tired. Yeah. Like, I feel like I could work for eight hours, um, like as a, uh, I don't know, name something. I always wanted to work at a bookstore, so I'm just going to go for sure. a bookstore restocker, yeah. right? I feel like I could work for eight hours there and feel well, even though my legs hurt <laughs> at the end yeah. of the day. But eight hours working on art, it's such an emotional experience for me and not always in a yeah. good way. For me, it's steeped in insecurity yeah. sometimes. Like, why does this look like crap? <laughs> you know, is everybody going to judge me? Uh, am I an imposter? You know, so for me, it comes with a lot of those feelings. So that's already a huge hurdle. And that will suck your energy out <laughs> more than just vibing for eight yeah, hours. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, and then your energy, your who am I? What am I bringing to the world yeah. with this art? <laughs> you know, that will suck your energy out. So it's like such a such a endless cycle of just like uh, losing your charge, I guess, which is the key for burnout. Yeah. No, it, it, it's true. You know, it's it's difficult to... You know, when when you've done this, it's important, I think, for anyone watching this, like, I've done this a while, you've done this a while, it doesn't, that feeling doesn't stop, right? Like the questioning of, why does this not look good? What am I doing with my life? Is, it, is this the, you know, like, what, that never stops. Like, it, 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 you can tune that, you learn to tune the voice out easier when you're doing it at, for a long period of time. But look, over 10 years now, I'm still thinking about that sometimes, you know, like I've worked on some pretty successful titles and I still sit down at the computer sometimes and think to myself, I have no idea what I'm talking about, <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's tough, you know, it's, it's tough. Yeah. I had this mentee and she goes, Anna, 
I get it. You've talked about imposter syndrome a bunch of times with me. My real issue isn't imposter syndrome. It's figuring out when when am I going to like when when is good enough for me to stop feeling it? Like how far do I go before I stop feeling it? And I'm like I got some really yeah. bad news for you, baby. <laughs> yeah. It's it's more like go to therapy. Like that's actually like the only way. You're not going to fix it by getting good at art, getting a big career. Uh, meeting the right people like, like imposter syndrome is going to stick along until you work on your own self-beliefs and yeah that takes time nice. and active yeah. work I, I actually was able to get over my imposter syndrome like 90 percent. it used to be crippling now it's like a thought that i have like on a tuesday you know um, oh. and it was not by any way except for a ton of journaling talking to my yeah. therapist and things like that so therapy's you know, awesome really <laughs> it is it, therapy it's is awesome, awesome. yeah I recommend it to yes. everybody. I know it's expensive. <laughs> uh, if you don't have therapy, if you don't have the access, which is understandable, um, I recommend this technique called shadow working until you get there. No, have you ever heard no, of that, no, Matthew? What is this? So Google it, guys. Like, there are so many prompts. It's basically a form of journaling where um, you're trying to like access your shadow self. Basically, the part of you that you repress are not proud of. Um, you know, normally it takes the form like, you know, it's a, it can get, get a little bit like meta or something yeah. like that, but it takes the form of your wounded child or it takes the form of something, you know, like, and the idea is to dig into why do you feel these feelings and why are you having these thoughts? So, for example, my thought would be, um, I am not worthy of this accolade mm -hmm. or job, right? Yeah. Then you have to realize like, hey, what? hold up, like that's a thought, that's not a fact. It comes steeped in emotion, it comes steeped in whatever, maybe your dad told you you're a bad artist when you were yeah. five years old and that stuck with you. So breaking down those beliefs is actually huge. You know, I always feel like, I always felt like when I was moving forward in my life, I was like dragging myself forward, like by the sheer strength of my spite mm. and will. But then I realized, why am I dragging so hard? There's stuff pulling me yeah. back. So you can actually move forward easier if you snip that stuff off, you know, by getting to know yourself and looking at the parts of you that you don't like. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a little, a little no, tangent I loved it. on that's that. That's great. But... That's super good information. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try that myself. <laughs> do it. it. So like, if you look online, there's like prompts, like, let's say you don't know where to start. So it'd be like new shadow work prompts. Like uh, today, write a whole page about one time you felt a yeah. certain way. You know, something like that. And just like getting to know yourself. Uh, for me, the big changes it made is that I was able to understand the reasons I felt what I felt. You know, uh, for example, last year, I made a huge break. I cried for like a while too when it came through because I, I was holding myself back due to fear of judgment. I felt so afraid of people judging me to the point where I became like almost neurotic about it. Every time I made a choice, I would be like, what are people going to think? Yeah of this yeah. choice. You know, like I put on a sweater. Oh, people are going to think it's ugly. I comb my hair a certain way. Oh, people are going to think I'm stupid, <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. uh, so like that was my my big holding back yeah. thing was my fear of judgment. So I, I was like, it was like January 2021. I was like, I'm going to journal on this for half an hour every day until I fix <laughs> it. <laughs> That's awesome. Every day I was there just like, oh, this is stupid. Like this is never going to work. One day, I, I decided to do some math because, you know, I guess that got to my tech art yeah. heart. I decided to do math. Like how how often in a day do I think about people judging me? Multiply that by a year. How many times last year did people actually judge me? And it was like 6,000 versus six times. And I was like, 
what felt worse? Was it the instances where somebody told me, like somebody sent me an, an email saying I was unprofessional one time that hurt me, but, um, that was one of the instances of yeah. being judged. Right. But it didn't hurt me that much. I was just angry yeah. at the time, you know, and I answered like, ah, how do you think you are? Okay. <laughs> and then, uh, versus the 6,000 times where it hurts so much more. And I realized that the fear was worse than the occasion of it coming to truth. And then that day I was like, huh, it was almost like a right. cloud lifted and I became lighter and dragging myself forward became that's easier. Awesome. You that's know? super cool. No, it's, it's awesome to hear. That's, that's yeah. not weird at all. That's super cool. <laughs> so we went on a huge yeah. tangent but burnout it's psychological just like everything else and honestly like our brains subconsciously in charge of everything so gotta work on that um are you ready for a rapid fire question sure yeah both from me and from your audience of people who know you on social media who have sent in a bunch of questions okay. for you okay so basically these are like more abridged versions sure. of questions what was the worst advice you ever got <laughs> uh the worst <laughs> advice i've ever gotten uh i will probably say that <sighs> the worst the worst advice i've i have ever gotten was to only focus on my own art and not worry about being a lead like when i was kind of approaching it there was a person who tried to steer me away from leadership early on uh because they just thought you know being a rock star or whatever was the the better path and uh i went along with it for a while uh you know i i didn't i i i became a lead in title only in the beginning and i wasn't my heart wasn't fully in it i think because i wasn't sure if this was the right path for me because of that person. Uh, I won't go into too much more detail, but that was probably the single worst piece of feedback I've, I've ever gotten. Yeah. It is so tough. Like if I were to give the audience listening an advice is like avoid giving people advice on what they should do, especially in big picture things of their yeah. lives, because they might listen and it, you might accidentally, accidentally drive them away from where they're supposed yeah. to go. I, I more so present facts and don't tell them what they should do. Like, you know, or make it clear it's your opinion because we are biased yeah. you know whenever somebody tell if somebody told me you shouldn't go into lead instead you should become a really good artist i'll be like why are you trying to sabotage yeah. me like do you want to be the lead instead like what's going on you know yeah. um that happens guys you know not everybody has your best interest yeah. at heart <laughs> okay what do you see as the future of character arts in the gaming industry and are there any trends or innovations that you're particularly excited about um <laughs> yeah i have to be careful how i answer this uh so i think mm, okay so i am a big believer it, it's tough if you asked me this two years ago I would say machine learning and AI are like the, are the things I'm most excited about uh, in terms of like character development. Now, when I would have answered that question, I would be thinking about it in terms of like Houdini and setting up like procedural 
pipelines for, you know, hair creation or, you know, using some of the cool little environment techniques that they're using through that program and transitioning it onto characters or auto retopology or auto UVing or auto rigging and all this other stuff. However, for obvious reasons, that answer now is a little bit skewed in some ways, right? Because it's it's incredibly difficult to say, I'm excited about machine learning when right now machine learning is a real pain point for a lot of artists and kind of myself included. Like I, my artwork is in the data set. I looked it up and it's, it's kind of weird, right? Like to see my work in that training data set uh, for things like mid journey and stuff like that. I mean, it's in some ways kind of flattering in a weird way, but it's also sort of like this weird, and uh, not. yeah, it's like it's not, but not right. Like it's like, oh, they thought to steal my work. How great! Um, but it's it's tough, right? It's 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 tough. So what I'll still say is, I I still believe machine learning is the most exciting thing right now in terms of automating pipelines. I feel like pipeline automation, and also I'll be very specific about this. I believe that pipeline automation is the most exciting thing that's happening right now that's coming down the line for all of us so that we as creatives can really focus on a lot of the things that we find very fun, right? Like just focusing on sculpting or texturing or doing these other things and not having to worry about a lot of the uh, somewhat you know monotonous, repetitive aspects of the pipeline. Like that is crazy exciting for me what I'm seeing coming out of Houdini or even the blender geometry nodes, or even the tools that I'm seeing internally right now being developed at unreal. Like it's incredibly exciting what procedural pipelines will allow characters to become. Um, that's, that's the future for me uh, is, is not necessarily full pipeline automation. I don't want us to turn into like computer wranglers, you know, like that's like, you know, kind of too mm -hmm. far in that way. But if a computer can sort of be my art buddy <laughs> and like sort of help me achieve the thing that I'm looking to achieve, then super cool, super awesome. But for obvious reasons, it, it's a, it's a, it's a gray area. It's a very touchy area. I am hard opposed, I will say to a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing right now in kind of the AI space. I'm not opposed to AI image generation per se. I am horrified by how those images were, were obtained, you know, and, and it, 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 it hurts me to see people I know personally have their styles by name replicated in some of this stuff. And it's like, ew. <laughs> you know, like, it's horrible. Yeah. If I had to summarize it, I'd say like, AI is cool, automation, awesome. It's not coming for our jobs <laughs> because as the pipeline becomes more automated, we don't have to spend a million hours a, a year doing retopology or UVs or whatever. The demand for more art is going mm -hmm. to increase. For example, Hogwarts Legacy has like a billion yes. models, you know, individual. So it's going to increase, which will make up for that lack of hours that yeah. we're going to see. That being said, the current state of AI has been done with a no code yes. of ethics yep. at all, no accountability at all, which is why it's left us all with a, with a bad taste yeah. in our mouths. Nobody wants their hard life's work stolen and then to lose out on income because of that. That is just ridiculous. And it's, I'm surprised it's been going on yeah. this long and there are not new lawsuits and things like that, that could help. Um, so we're going to start seeing some like, regulations, Hopefully. you yeah. know, I don't know how far it's going to help, but I, I have yeah. hopes. I want to, 
you AI to be reset kind of, and start it over with some sort of ethical code, you know, where you, you opt yeah. in to, to have your work, uh, learned from, they use not licensable yeah. things, you know, I, there's just like big Getty images lawsuit yeah. right now. So I'm hoping that like, you know, these big companies that I don't particularly like, but they have the funding, they're going to fix this for us. Hopefully. I'm hoping, yeah. you know, I mean, that's just it. It's weird. Yeah. Like you can't put the genie back in the bottle in some ways. So it's like, it, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's unfortunate. This is their first step out the door that this is, this is what the yeah. art community is met with is blatant theft mm -hmm. and, uh, style regurgitation and and i agree if had they done this in a proper way with royalty free images to begin with which there are plenty of them online um yeah the images that they're being generated may not be as like sexy and cool coming out of mid-journey or something else like that but it'll at least allow like you just said artists to maybe see benefit to opt in their own work later on down the line but they never gave anyone that opportunity. And now it's just this kind of gross situation that we'll hopefully navigate out of in a way. I don't see the tool going away in any way, shape or form. I do think it's here. And I think there needs to be somewhat of a, an understanding. I think there are some artists that think, you know, if we complain enough, it'll go away. I don't companies now know it's a thing. Not yeah, via complaints. It's, it's here. It's, it's here. However, the iteration that it's in, I do hope it goes, that goes away. I would love to see it replaced with something that is ethical and that allows for a, at least an understood level of, of replication as opposed to what it is now, which is, Hey, you, a lot of ours to this day, don't even know that their art is in that training data set. <laughs> I've never yeah. checked mine. Well, to be honest, all my art on the internet, I'm not that fond of it anyway, but. <laughs> I think we should all make bad art. That's it. Yeah. To Let's train the, the, the algorithms to really <laughs> <That's> <laughs> sabotage it. Yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> so biz.art on Instagram asked, what inspires you? Nice. Uh, you know, everything, everything. Uh, I mean, to be, to be more fair, uh, the kind of artwork that I love um, tends to be very clean uh, primary forms with very sort of toothy tertiary forms. I love the contrast of that idea. So a lot of the work that I do personally tends to explore that space. It tends to be um, something that's really sort of clean and fun and pushed from a primary form perspective, but have very hyper-realistic detailed textures and materials and PBR lighting with realistic lighting. I love that kind of duality. So I tend to look at a lot of... Um, you know, uh, stop motion stuff. Leica is a massive inspiration to me in terms of that kind of stuff. I love Pixar films. Um, I love that kind of, uh, you know, I, I like things with tooth. I like things with like hard material definitions, that sort of thing really, really sparks uh, joy in me and allows me in my professional work to kind of have a bit of range, right? So I could work on something like something very stylized like Civ 6 or something much more cinematic and realistic like Hogwarts Legacy. And because of the approach that I take to my own personal work, the stylized forms help in that Civ and, and like the more realistic rendering of materials and, and tertiary forms can really help in Hogwarts stuff. And so, you know, I've, I've kind of in a weird way, developed a style that allows me to keep a foot in both both worlds in some ways and so uh that's that's what inspires me basically that kind of stuff fabulous um 
Ilya Medvedev, I'm pretty sure I just ruined your name. I'm sorry, Ilya, <laughs> asks a question that I'm going to okay. reword. So they said, how much of traditional art background and drawing do you think is needed for the stylized character artists? And do you think that highly artistical sculpting is achievable just through daily zebra sculpts? So we've already kind of talked about the fundamentals a lot. So I'd like to reword this into a different question that I wanted to have asked earlier, but I forgot, which is there's a debate in our industry whether or not character artists and zebra sculptors need to know how to draw. Ah, What's your opinion? Um, I'm probably going to upset some people with this, but I feel like if you sculpt enough. Okay, so here's the thing. I started out drawing, right? I did. I started out as a cartoonist. I was a cartoonist. I was an illustrator. I started drawing. I then shifted to sculpting. Once I started sculpting, I did, and this is kind of terrible to say, I did stop drawing when I started sculpting because that became my main Same. medium of ex expression. However, when I went back to drawing, because I do do this periodically, go back to sketching, I found that my understanding of 3D forms in terms of like this canvas was so much stronger because of my years of sculpting. I began to be able to sort of reject the forms in some ways onto the sheet of paper in a way that I, I never knew how to do before. So I don't know. I mean, I think you have to start with one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if you need to know how to draw to sculpt. I, I know a couple of toy sculptors that don't draw. They just sculpt. So it's, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. So, <laughs> My opinion on this is that this question is a problem, just generally, because it can be used by beginner sculptors or against beginner sculptors to slow down their progress. Mm. Oh, I want to learn how to sculpt. Oh, but I need somebody told me I need to know how to draw first. So then two years go by and you never yeah. touch sculpture, which was your yeah. initial goal, right? And you probably don't draw that well either. People get medium and fundamentals mixed up in this yeah. case because the fundamentals you use to sculpt and to draw are the yeah. same anatomy form you know everything like that even lighting it's the same crap yeah <laughs> uh the only difference is the medium is it pencil on paper is it clay really like and one builds on the other so like you said you know um because the fun the foundations yeah. are there so the only benefit well the main benefit of knowing how to draw in my opinion is um it's a really easy way to iterate or to do like a like you know a quick sketch. A quick sketch in three D is seven hours long. A quick sketch in in two D is what yeah, fifteen minutes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, um, so you know that's I agree. The, I, I, the difference. I just personally I agree. Like actually, question. I think I think I think you said it best that it, it can be very problematic. I think yeah. I think as long as you're focusing on fundamentals in general, like you said, like instead of thinking of it in terms of like drawing first, sculpting first, think of it in terms of form theory and 2D composition. And it's like, can you explore those in ZBrush or in like a actual physical sculpture block of, yeah, you can, you absolutely can explore all of those things in terms of composition and things like that in any medium that you choose. So I agree. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Skyless Canvas on Instagram asks, have you ever felt stuck? And if so, how did you overcome it? I feel stuck all the time. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I have a trick to overcome it. I think the thing that I've really worked hard on, 
do I'm assuming this means like creatively stuck, like 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 a like a okay. I don't know. So it just generally okay. stuck. Uh Okay, so I'm going to take as creatively stuck uh, in terms of creatively stuck, like writer's block kind of thing, you know, accepting that you're not going to be a fountain of inspiration all the time is massive, you know, like accepting that it's okay to not do it every day is is important. Um, if she if, if this person means career wise, like if you ever felt stuck in your career? Yeah, sure. I felt stuck in my career. Um, and I hate to sound like a broken record, but what got me out of that was the artist statement was sitting down and really making sure that I really understood myself kind of like what you did with your journaling, right? Like I, I, I really needed to sit down. I did, I guess you could call it journaling. I wrote down an artist statement for myself, you know, using all the poetic language that a fine artist would to describe like what I would want to work on and things like that. And as silly as it sounds, it helped. It helped, it helped a ton, you know, it really, it got me focusing, you know, I went from a point where I could barely even pick up a Wacom pen. I was so burnt out. I couldn't even sculpt. That's actually why I started streaming. Actually, like that, that was one of the things I talked about, I think in my first stream, but that's been lost now. But like, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I initially got into streaming in the first place was because I found it impossible to sculpt because I had, I had, uh, gonna go a little heavy but like i actually had like a, a ptsd response to to sculpting i was so i was so burnt out that even the idea of a centique in front of me uh got me in a really in a really bad way and so streaming put me in a situation where i had to sculpt again i had to perform but it allowed for people to do what you're doing right now which is talk to me and ask me questions and prevent me from spiraling out basically like at me yeah Letting the, the exactly. dark thoughts in. <laughs> and through that, yeah. I got over it. You know, I, I, that and the artist statement helped me kind of get to a place of uh, being comfortable with the work that I create again. That is, Matthew, you've said like five things that made me think, Matthew, we are like the same person. <laughs> because that's how I started streaming too. That and like a couple other reasons. But also, I was so burned out after college. And once I got my first job, which was right after college, I was focusing on that. And I let the sculpting drop off. I tried so much to sculpt and I was on the verge of tears by the time I was done, like banging my head against it for hours. The streaming came as a, now I know how to put it into words. It came as a technique to add external accountability mm, into my yeah. life. Um, you know, because I was finding every excuse possible to not do it and then feeling guilty about not doing it. But then I was like, Hey, those three viewers, they're waiting for me, <laughs> yeah. you know, they yeah. want me here. And not just that, but I get to know them, um, get to network with new people, get to, you know, make a name. For, and I ended up making my, a name for myself in the industry. That was a nice yeah. little bonus, right? Uh, but, you know, it's same thing. And yeah, I think feeling stuck can come from a lack of direction, which is why sitting down and realizing what you want in the first place matters, yeah. you know, knowing what you want, isn't going to get you what you want, but it's going to tell you yes. which way to paddle, yeah, absolutely. you know, and if you're paddling absolutely. in circles yeah. then you're stuck, right? Just doing random stuff every day, hoping that once something sticks, like that's not, I'm super strategic. Like I love <laughs> strategizing and I always have to have some sort of scheme yeah. going, you know, and when I don't, I start to burn out. Isn't that funny? Like, because it doesn't speak to my inner person of, hey, I need to have something to work towards, something yeah. big picture normally, you know? 
totally. Um, oh gosh, there's so many. Oh, I don't know which one to ask that. I'm, next. I'm here for you. So what um, do you need? Software. software. Okay. What software do you use? Um, so my toolbox, uh, consists of ZBrush for sculpting, Marmoset for baking, uh, and lighting look dev. Uh, I use top, I'm a big topo gun guy. So I'm using topo gun three, uh, to retopologize everything, uh, substance painter for my textures and material management, uh, sometimes substance designer. If I need something for a tileable material, like a, a layered material system in unreal, uh, and I'm an Unreal developer. I've kind of, that was one of the things that like really cemented my sort of path in some ways is like finding Unreal and finding projects that work in Unreal allowed me to sort of explore. Unreal's a massive engine. And so I ended up really learning a lot of the technical side of Unreal. So I do a lot of blueprint scripting and blutilities and things like that in Unreal. Um, I'm on a project right now where I get to actually stretch a lot of my design chops and come out with like blueprint prototypes to show the engineering team of like, this is what I'm looking for. So using Unreal allowed me to kind of almost become more of a game developer in some weird way. Like I feel like I can talk better with the other disciplines now. Um, so that's sort of my general, my general toolbox. And I use Photoshop a little bit for, you know, concepting and paint overs and Miro, 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 Miro. I am a massive, massive, massive believer in whiteboarding. I, I believe in it. I believe in it so strongly that I will tell you that using Miro or you can use Whimsical or you can use, I know Microsoft has a version of whiteboard and things like that. That kind of program, a mind mapping program is what they call it. I will, I will attest that it changed my entire approach to documentation, to communication, to getting visions across. I don't start a single project now without a master mirror board laid out where I can set up basically what I call the edges of the canvas. And I set up the tent poles within that canvas. And what that allows the team, you know, to do is not only see the contents of my brain, which is scattered on a good day, but it allows me to at least communicate that so they can see what I want the end result to be and all of the reasons why, like everything that got to that point. So they don't only know what, they know the why it has to be this way. And I find by doing that and setting up, and I do this for all the disciplines. I set up a master mural board for animation, for concepting, for engineering, for design. I put this whole board together and I have everyone sign off on it. I have everyone agree to it so that the rest of the team can use that board as kind of an onboarding process. And it gives them restrictions, which I think is important in creativity. You can't just have a blank canvas. It gives them edges of the canvas to look at. And when they have those edges understood and they have those tent poles in place, then you can let them just riff in between. And the confidence and the kind of things that come out of that exploration is going to be a thousand times better and more directed to what you're looking for than had you not done that. So whiteboarding is, and for me, when I say whiteboarding, I do mean the program Miro, but like I said, you can use a bunch of other different kinds of mind mapping software. That has been a game changer that within the last three years I have been uh, a zealot for i've absolutely been preaching the good word of mind mapping it's been amazing been absolutely amazing that's yeah. fantastic that's super fun you know uh even for personal projects i think that's yeah. super valid 
Uh, I do that too. And I even go as far as to write down what problems I want to overcome with this project, what yeah. I want to learn, you know, and how I want to improve um, and what I want to avoid, like, like personal things, yeah. you know, like, Hey, I have this problem that I do every time. Yeah. Let's try to fix that this time, you know? So the next question is, um, Skyless Canvas again on Instagram says, what exercises do you give to new mentees to figure out where they're at in skill level? Oh, uh, I actually have, I do have an answer for this. Uh, so it's the unconscious sculpting. So I, I have them pull up a sphere with me and we sculpt together. Uh, that's, that's been my number one way of approaching just cause for me, that allows me to explore from a foundation level where they're at. I can see from that how they think because I can see from a sphere. Okay. If I'm going to take this sphere, I'm going to watch them turn into a character. What are the steps they're taking? How are they approaching this exercise? It's not like, Hey, let's take a human base mesh and turn that into a character. No, remove everything. Here's a sphere. Make this something not a sphere. Make it a head. Make it a torso. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Just go. Make it something. How they go about approaching that tells me a ton of where they're at in terms of thinking like a 3D artist. Because I can tell quickly if they're going too quickly into details or they're going too quickly or they're staying too long into forms. They're constantly changing their mind too quickly. Or they're going right, you know. All of the stuff allows me to really get into the head of that person that I'm working with uh, to make them better. So that's always my first step. What do you want to achieve out of this mentorship? And hey, let's pull up ZBrush. Together. Let's start sculpting. Let's start sculpting. I don't, you know, it's like, oh, what do you want me to sculpt? I don't care. I'm just going to, I'm sculpting on my end. You want to watch me? Great. I'm going to keep sculpting. You sculpt whatever you want to sculpt. In my mind, I'm, my eye is on their screen and I'm going, okay, this is, this is what they're this is what they're all about, basically. <laughs> that's a kind of that's really creative way to do it. I like that um, a lot, and especially because it has, of course, that creative look into it as well. You know, you don't want to just know how they sculpt something that's pre-made. You also want to know where their design yes. sensibilities are at. Do they have a mental library of what the human body is supposed to look <laughs> yeah. like, for example? You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, I'm, I'm looking on Twitter right now for more questions for you. Um, okay. Rowena Frenzel, fellow character artist. Hi, Rowena. How are you doing? Asks, I'm always interested about the daily routine of artists. How do they plan and organize themselves throughout the day? How much balance do they have? And what do they do besides art? Uh, like personally. What, so we answered a little bit about the balance thing in that I don't have very good balance mm -hmm. when it comes to that kind of stuff. What <laughs> yeah. do I do outside of art? Um, I, I do play the occasional indie game. I'm a sucker for a good like walking simulator or something like that. Like I love games like the Stanley parable and things like that. There are what remains of you Finch. I love a game that I can kind of just go through in a weekend and feel like I've gone somewhere, like had an experience that took me somewhere. Uh, I'm a big lover of films. I love watching movies. That's a massive thing for me. I, obviously, I started in film and I, I, I did so because I have a love of film. I love animated films. I love dramatic films. I love, you know, film in general. Um, so those are really kind of the two other things. I also cook a little bit. <laughs> That's like a, a relative to what we're talking about here. But uh, I do love a good home-cooked meal. <laughs> so. No, it's super worth it to like not let you this become your entire identity and your entire yeah. life. 
right? She even added here, many people think that waking up, drinking a coffee and hustling for 14 hours a day is the key to the success. Yeah. You know, um, and honestly, we've all been there. I know you and yeah. me, we have probably, um, but it's actually like, you know, a bad yeah. balance. It's, it's unsustainable. It hurts. Um, literally yes. it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> bad posture, wrists. I'm pretty sure my IQ <laughs> is lower because I, because I, uh, didn't sleep for the last year Jeez. of college basically. And it, it caused me to have blackouts, like where I've lost hours or days from my memory and things like that. Like, it's not worth it, yeah. guys. Um, let's see what who else has a everybody's asking questions we've already talked about, or questions that are a little too specific <laughs> to your project. <laughs> we're not we're not going to break NDA today. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, um, do you have any tips or tricks for our viewers about time management and working efficiently? Um, working efficiently. Yeah. So, I mean, I do pride myself on my speed and just being able to kind of get an idea out. I think the way you, you approach something like that is getting, I think, I mean, you said it best. I think you just gotta get comfortable with, with failing and kind of being okay with that. So it's not necessarily any trick to being, uh, you know, better at time managed. There's no like tricks to it. It's just like working quickly and failing fast is essentially the, the only thing I'll say to that. Like knowing when to let a project go and move on is as important as knowing when to stay with it and committing to it. I, I think there's, there's a real, there's a real sense that, and it's something you develop as you, you do this for a while. But I think a lot of times younger artists and people who are just entering into the industry, they want to make a piece work. And so they bang against it, bang against it, bang against it. Next thing you know, you blink and a month has gone by and you have nothing to, to show for it. Yeah, if right. Exactly. Uh, and that could also yeah. happen on professional projects too. You know, I've, I've had to pull assets from people just because they've, they've spun on something too long, you know? And uh, so like the time management aspect is just knowing when to, to stop knowing when to say, Hey, enough, I, I, you know, this is not working. So do I ask for help? Do I pivot? Do I, you know, when do I hoist the flag essentially? Um, and that's, that's, you know, the, the best way I think you can manage your time. <laughs> okay. So that's perfect because my mentees, uh, and some students, they get stuck in this loop of making lateral progress is, is what I call it, where you are redoing stuff over and over again and never yeah. actually making it better. Right. Sometimes making <laughs> it worse. I have them in team like, what? why does it look worse than last time that you came by? You know, but I say it with love, uh, you know, but still, um, and they get stuck because they're too perfectionistic, yes. right? And our cultures have this idea that perfectionism is a good thing. My 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 family used to praise me. They used to be like, "Oh, Kara's such a perfectionist," <laughs> you know. She cares, but no, it's like more of a self sabotage method. I recommend the book, "The Mountain Is You," one of my favorite self help books of all time. It talks about self sabotage down, for like most of it, <laughs> and I'm like, there's like there's like thirty types of self sabotage. I do like twenty seven point five of them. So like the you know, is you. um. The Mountain Is You, it's such a good book. Um, I recommend it to everybody because we all do it, yeah. you know? We are the mountain that we have to climb. And perfectionism is horrible because it, it freezes you. It doesn't make your work better. It makes you less adept at making work, less willing to make mistakes. 
you know, um, sometimes you just got to finish an imperfect piece because going through the whole process and posting it on your portfolio will teach you more than getting stuck on level or yeah. on step two and then giving up, you know? Um, so perfectionism is horrible and it's not good and you have to work through it. Um, and that's where a lot of this comes from, you know, um, be okay with making mistakes. Like Matthew said, sometimes if you're spinning, stop the spinning by choosing a different option, ask for help, even take a day off. Like sometimes that's enough. You know, I know for me, whenever I'm, I'm blueprinting or doing any sort of coding, I'll get stuck on a bug, can't fix it. Then I'll go home, take a bath. And then the answer comes yeah. when I'm not yeah, thinking yeah. about it. And I'm like, Oh crap. <laughs> it was that one thing, you know? Um, so yeah, like change up, don't loop. Oh, there's this TikTok sound. Matthew, are you I on am, TikTok yeah. at all? <laughs> You had, you post no, your art on there? A little bit. Yeah. Or I'm mostly dancing. I'm just kidding. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> There's this song sound on TikTok that goes, um, it's like a robot voice and it says, you must break the cycle today or it will repeat tomorrow. You must break the cycle today or it will repeat tomorrow and it just loops through. And I'm like, that is awfully <laughs> profound and extremely yeah. relatable. And we can bring that down into a, a micro uh, scale of like, you know, the cycle during your work, it could yeah. take 15 minutes, but you're cycling, cycling, you got to break the cycle. The one right? thing I want to add to that is you reminded me of something when you said that like the work, when they kept working on it, didn't get better. It just, it in some ways got worse. You know, I will have to admit that as leads and as art directors, uh, we are victim of that ourselves. And there are many a times where I have to look at something and admit to myself that what I'm looking at, I could keep giving feedback on. Um, I could do a sculpt over on it. I could do a paint over on it. But is what I'm about to ask this artist to do going to make the piece better? Or is it just going to make the piece different? In which case, can I then successfully remove my own personal bias from it and accept that this piece that they did fits the criteria. If I look on the mirror board, it fits in the, in the canvas that I set up for them, in which case then I have to say, okay, not the way I would have done it, but it fits. And so therefore you, you get the win. I don't, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna critique this, you know, forever, but I will admit that that is something that as someone in this position, you have to learn how to do because there are a lot of people that have done this for a long time that still run into that where they stay, they hyper-focus on feedback because that artist isn't doing it the exact way that they want it to be done. And in which case you're just going to burn out your artist. Like if it's passable and your feedback is only making the work different, my advice to anyone who's watching this, who is a lead or an art director let them have the win. <laughs> You're going to have a happier artist. You're probably going to have a better product. Yeah, it may not be uh, every single bootstrap and belt buckle to your exact specifications, but guess what? That artist is going to feel so much more empowered because they got to put their little thumbprint on it and the amount of work and the quality of work you're going to get out of that artist in the future, it's going to be multiplied by 10 now because of that. Yeah, giving exactly. them a little confidence. Yeah not micromanaging. Um, I go through a similar process in my mentorship, but um, it's really knowing when to stop giving feedback, even if it's not, even if your feedback would make it better, to what, when do you stop? Because literally this person has been working on yeah. this piece for months and you need them to move on to the next part, yeah. right? And it's so hard to balance that because you want them to do the best they can, but you also want them <laughs> to move on 
and finish it because finishing it is yes. essential, essential part of the process um, that we keep skipping, which is a great segue to the final question slash topic. Me and Matthew were already talking about this before we started yeah. rolling, which is finishing yeah. stuff. Um, it's hard to finish stuff, be it due to a lack of time, new ideas yeah. that come along. It's a lot of commitment that it takes to finish stuff, especially in 3D, since it takes a while to do the stuff in 3D, right? No matter how fast you are, it's still many hours investment. Matthew, tell us about your story and your techniques for finishing huh. stuff. So as we talked about before, I'm not I'm not the greatest at at finishing personal pieces, so much so that uh, I've actually kind of committed to trying to work through the backlog of unfinished products and pro projects that I've, I've been working on these past couple of years. Um, I think it's difficult for any creative to call any piece finished. You know, there's a, there's a great saying that like, you know, artwork is simply abandoned. It's never finished. You know, eventually you have to kind of just put the pencil down and say, Hey, this is as good as it's going to get in this time. I need to move on. Um, and I've taken that approach with a number of the pieces that I've that I've worked on in my own personal life. Obviously, professional work is different. We have a deadline. Things have to ship. <laughs> things are clearly defined as done at a certain point. Um, but in personal work, uh, you know, it, it becomes kind of infinitely difficult because you don't have a client that you're making it for. You are your own client, and it's really difficult to define what finished is. There's no like producer defining a gate process of like, okay, well, it's past this gate, therefore we can't go back or something like that. Um, so the way the way I've been working on it is I have kind of a list of like uh, seven or eight pieces that I've made uh, in different varying levels of finish over the pandemic into like now. And uh, I'm not going to be sort of focusing on making any new artwork. What I'm going to do, because I'm really happy with some of the pieces that I've done. I'm going to take a lot of those pieces and try to go through the process of finishing them. What that looks like to me is finishing a sculpt and turning them into an animated, and that's a key thing, animated real-time piece, because I do want to explore motion in the work that I'm doing. That's sort of the, the new element that I'm adding to sort of the work that I do, because I think it helps solidify the character that I have in my head because I always see them sort of like moving around and different things like that. And so I want to sort of express that in the work that I do. I also want to explore rigging and animation a little bit more so in my own personal work. So there's a little bit of a selfishness thing in there. Uh, but that's, that's sort of my view on, on finishing is, is, is because I'm not good on it. Uh, I am kind of forcing myself starting like with that last gamer dino piece I just did to begin to work backwards. And some of the work that you'll see come out of me this year will be sculpts that you've maybe seen from me, like a couple, you know, on stream or in my, you know, posted on my blog or things like, oh, I know that piece or things like that. Yeah, you'll see a lot of that stuff, but they'll be finished. They'll be moving. They'll have materials. I'll build a scene around them. It'll be like what I did with Gamer Dino, which is a, a full little environment scene that kind of solidifies, like I said, the thing that's in my head. I want to bring that to the canvas and and try to bring these things to life in a way that I haven't been able to before. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, 
agree. I actually have the same uh, intention for 2023 myself to finish all the stuff that I made on streams. Like there's a million pieces out there that I haven't finished. And by the way, not every piece is worth finishing. Oh, right? absolutely. Would you yeah, agree yeah. that like if you made something when you were like two months into learning ZBrush and now you're yeah. two years in, like that thing probably has the worst <laughs> yes. foundations ever yes. just yes. start over. <laughs> a lot of people ask me about that. I'm like, it's not worth it to go back to that one. That one's like foundationally flawed. You've grown so much. Skip it. Um, but you have to hold yourself accountable, which is the hardest thing ever. Self-accountability for some of us is difficult, which is why people go to college, <laughs> take courses, go to mentorships, because we need that external yeah. accountability. Right. And um, I will say something. Actually, the mountain is you, I think, taught me this, which is when you make promises to yourself, like I'm going to finish three pieces in 2023 and you don't you don't follow through, you're actually breaking your trust in yourself mm. with your subconscious. Next time you say something, I'm going to finish this. You're not going to believe yourself. And that actually hurts yeah. your own self-esteem. Even if you don't know it, like in your head, I'm like, yeah, this time I'm going for it. Deep down in your brain, your brain is like, <laughs> no, you're not. And it won't make the efforts to support you yeah. in that journey. Yeah. Right. Um, so once you make a commitment, you got to stick with it. And this is one of the hardest things I do in my mentorship. It's my mentorship is not college. It's not school. I can't call your parents. Yeah. I can't yeah. uh, grade yeah. you. You know, what does an right. F mean in my mentorship? Nothing. Right. Uh, and people are like, well, if you if you don't do the if you don't do the work, what am I supposed to do? I mean, besides yeah. disappoint me, <laughs> I'm not mad. Yeah. I'm disappointed, you know. But at the end of the day, you're in command. You know, people like me and Matthew, we're just giving you guidance, but we can't force you to get the stuff done. We're not there at your house, you know, turning off your TV, you know. Um, so you do have to build that discipline of being able to trust yourself. And that's a whole other journey. And it, and it comes from following through, even if it's something small, you don't know how to finish stuff, make a small piece that takes a week to finish a weekend, go for a low scope. That's like the only way to bring back the trust. Like this weekend, I always get this urge to go to an Airbnb for some reason. So I'm just okay. going to use the Airbnb <laughs> top uh, idea. This weekend, I'm taking my laptop, I'm going to an Airbnb, I'm turning off my phone, I'm going to finish a tiny piece yeah. that it's doable in 14 hours you know now you get that amazing dopamine hit of pressing posts on art station and that is a reward that you're not used to feeling and then you do it again and again and then you start graduating to bigger stuff like you know it's so hard to be disciplined and accountable honestly i could just do a whole yeah. podcast on that because it's so hard i mean like trust me it's part of my job in many ways my jobs yeah you know with a z um and it's so hard so hard you know bad habits they, they are no, strong it's, it's it's true it's 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 difficult and i think it, you said something kind of interesting in which like just like even posting a sculpt in some ways could be technically finishing a piece right there are certain pieces and i should have maybe clarified that like my definition of done has changed a little bit right you could i could post the sculpts that i'm talking about right now to art station and i could consider them done i can call them done those are those are what i wanted from those pieces but when i say that like i want to finish those it's clearly pieces that i see the sculpt is good i want to keep that going but for some of you guys the sculpt could be the piece that could be the end result that you're looking for you know that you that you need to post um 
I just know for myself, I have a lot of sculpts up on my art station. I want to sort of move into more full project kind of things uh, just for my own personal sake, because that's sort of now my new gated definition of, of done basically. Yeah. It's your, what would you call it again? Like the artist artist statement, you mean the artist, it's your new artist statement, right? Now I do all these extra things, total narrative. It's a complete piece. It showcases more skills. It's totally valid in my opinion. Um, that brings us to the end of our wonderful podcast episode with Matthew. Matthew, oh thank you so much for this coming. Is, it's been an this honor. This has been a wonderful conversation. I, it got deeper than I thought it, it would, so I appreciate you coming along for that ride. <laughs> uh, wonderful. Um, thank you so much again. Like, ah, it's, gonna, it's been so great. I hope to see you yes. at GDC maybe if you go. Um, I want to say also a special thank you to our sponsor of today, the Ringling College of Art and Designs VR major. Matthew, do you have anything you want to promote? Like sure. a social media? Yeah. So on on most social medias, I go by the moniker Framed World, F-R-A-M-E-D-W-O-R-L-D. That's pretty much everything on socials, except for Twitter, which I am I go under the moniker at Digisculpt, no T, Digisculpt. Uh, I couldn't get Framed World or Digisculpt <laughs> either one, so I had to settle for uh, <laughs> Digisculpt. Um, but yeah, so those are my two sort of main. Uh, areas and then obviously if you just google my name my linkedin and stuff like that will will pop up uh if anyone has any questions or anything like that you can reach me on instagram artstation linkedin twitter what have you my my messages are always open so uh and i'm an open book as you can clearly see so uh no question is off limits i'm happy to talk about the industry and and the work Oh, that's so nice. As far as me, you can find me as Anna Carolina underscore arts on everywhere. I, every time a new social media comes out, I download it just <laughs> to smart. get the username. That's smart. Yeah. <laughs> so that's A-N-A-C-A-R-O-L-I-N-A underscore art. Um, also, I have a mentorship, which will soon be taking in new mentees. Uh, you'll be able to find that on my website, AnnaCarolinaArts.com. Um, and I do everything from supporting you in your character art career, even though not everybody that joins the character artist, for example, I do tech art too. Uh, but also, you know, things like how to network, navigate the industry, uh, portfolio reviews, resume reviews. Um, I can get you in contact with people, all sorts, like it's a holistic approach. So the difference between my mentorship and a lot of others is that it's not just an art mentorship. It's a career coaching kind of thing plus art. Uh, so feel free to check that out. Once the time comes, I'll let you guys know on social media and, uh, yeah, that's it for me. So, um, thank you everybody for tuning in. This is still a brand new podcast and it would mean the world to me. And Josh, if you guys would share this episode with your friends and other people you've met in the industry uh, that you think might benefit from this knowledge, the more eyes we can get on this, the better we're going to grow, which will allow us to keep going. Okay. Uh, We have so many amazing other guests, just like Matthew coming in from all sorts of industries. Our next one is Danielle Hashimoto, who is a very famous VFX artist who has millions of followers. Um, Basically, he takes his kids, videos of his kids, and turns them into super epic lightsaber battles and things like that. You've probably seen him on social media. It's viral. So please go ahead and subscribe to the channel. Leave us a like. Leave us a comment. We appreciate all your support. And come back for the next one. Bye.